We are the uh, Easley family, and we will be lighting the uh, Advent candles this morning. In the first week of Advent, we lit the candle of hope as we remember that Jesus brings us hope and our longing for justice in the world. On the second week of Advent, we lit the candle of peace as we remember that our relationship with Jesus gives us peace as we hunger for relationships. Last week, we lit the candle of faith to remember that Christ gives us faith in our quest for spirituality. Today's Advent reading is from Psalms 27, 1 through 5. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. This week, we pause to recall that as we delight in beauty, we find that Christ brings us true joy. We are in Psalm 27 and Psalm 16 this morning. Uh, before we actually begin to read that, I said there were a couple things that we needed to do. One is to just remember where we are. We are in this sermon series of Advent. We are in our concluding week. And we've remembered this each week together, that it's by God's own words that we have the revelation of God, the God that we know. That when we speak of revelation, we're not uh, talking about some abstract, uh, subjective experience, but the reality of the revelation of God's word, an authoritative, me authoritative means by which we can know the God who is. And while we have this, we also have these longings that are shared across humanity, even among those who have either not heard or have ignored this word. We have longings that are shared across humanity in a variety of cultures and a variety of circumstances that N.T. Wright calls a sort of echo of a voice. Well, now, we can't trust our longings as authoritative any more than we can trust the echo of a voice. It would be far better to go and hear the voice itself and hear the words clearly so that we can understand rightly what the voice is actually speaking. But the echo tells us there's something there. There's a voice to be heard. In humanity's shared longings, we discover a question that only the voice of God himself can answer, and he does so authoritatively according to the revelation we find in his word. We discover a desire that the creator alone can satisfy. And these echoes that are common among humanity, we have focused just on four of these. We're op opening up the fourth today. Longing for justice, a, lo a hunger for relationships, a quest for spirituality, and today a delight in beauty. 
Let's turn together to Psalm 16, and I'm going to read verse 11 there. Verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use this word to work in your church, that we would not hear an echo, a faint, distant hope. But we would hear you, that your spirit would work among your church as you did with Mary, as you did with Elizabeth, as you have done with your church by means of your word ever since. I pray that you would speak and we would hear. And the questions that we have, the longings that we have, the hopes that we have would find their confidence and delight in you. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I have a question for you at, in Psalm 16 there, in verse 11. Do you see the orientation of the psalmist? How does the, where is the psalmist looking? How, where does, how does he lean? And what we find is we find the psalmist leaning on pleasures at God's right hand. Where is he leaning? Where is he looking? He's looking at God. Well, in the passage it says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Why in his presence? Why does a psalm, why does was the psalmist in, in, in Psalm 27, similarly to we find here in Psalm 16, say, one thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What, what is that? He wants to be where the Lord has said he would be, in his house. That's speaking of the temple by the way, the place where God's presence was manifest, was made known among his people. He wants to be in God's house because he wants to be in the place where his presence brings fullness of joy. And he says it in the very next words, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To, to not only see beauty, but to inquire there. To, to look in closely into intricacies and the manifold nature of the glories and beauties of our God. Why does David seek the presence of the Lord? Because David seeks beauty in God himself. There is no higher beauty than the beauty that is to be found in our God. There's no excellency, no perfection, no delight, no satisfaction that is greater than that which can be found in the Lord God, who is creator of all things, sovereign over the universe, and redeemer of our souls. There's nothing greater than the beauty that is in our God. And we worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it would be appropriate that we should spend a moment exploring the beauty of the Trinity, now, there is no definition of beauty outside of the Godhead. This is something I have spent literally decades now reflecting on. I was a music composition and computer graphic arts major in college. Um, now that some of you are like, and he's a preacher, uh, so what is the qualification? I did do a little bit of work after college there, but I'll tell you, the arts are a wonderful place to reflect on the nature of our God. And one of the things that took place during my time of study in college and reflecting upon the beauty of music and, and art and uh, all of these things that, that are 
is that they are reflections of something. They are, art is an, an echo at best of something else. It's one of the reasons why the, the, there's really almost rules to art. There are things that you can discover when you look at art and you hear art in the variety and the beauty and the diversity even of the cultures in which art is found. There is a definition of beauty that they all seem to sort of be leaning toward and grasping at. I think it's because, and I would argue from the word, that there is no beauty outside of God. All beauty is an effort and an expression of the beautiful. All beauty that is external to God is a creative expression and reflection on divine beauty and perfection of God himself. Another way to put it would be that there's no innovative or substantial beauty outside of the Trinity. That's why the I read what I read at the beginning of our time. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. No good. There is no good apart from God. There's no innovative, new, good thing. No substantial beauty outside of the Trinity. All beauty that is external to the Trinity is, first of all, a vapor in and of itself. It is an echo of a voice that is, and the echo is fading, and the voice remains. We hear it, but the beauty is fading and only reminiscent of a beauty that is beyond creation. It is the creator. So, which makes me ask, during the course of my years of thinking on what is the nature of beauty, if God is perfect beauty, if God is all that is excellent, and he is enduring and sustaining and satisfying, why is there any other beauty? Why is there anything external to him? Why do we see and enjoy all the beauty that is around us? Why did God make the beauty and the excellence of creation if in himself is something infinitely greater? Why, when God looked at creation... Did he look at creation and call it good? Why did he, why when he look at creation didn't he say, eh, rough approximation. Nice, nice try self <laughs> at making something that's greater than, you know, me. Why did he call it good? There's a, a gentleman named Steve DeWitt. He wrote a book called Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God in Everything. I haven't read it. I read a review of it. And in that review, Tim Challies, who I've read quite a bit, he writes this. Beauty is a breadcrumb trail intended to chaperone us back to Christ, who is the one that our hearts truly long for. Beauty was created by God for a purpose. It's practical. To give us the experience of wonder. And wonder in turn, is intended to lead us to the ultimate human expression and privilege, worship. Now there's art. There's the true art, worship. Beauty is both a gift 
and a map. It's a gift to be enjoyed and a map to be followed back to the source of the beauty with praise and thanksgiving. Man, that's helpful to me. Now I understand what all these beautiful things are, what all these mountain ranges and all these works of art and all of this music, all this diversity of beauty in our world is a map and a gift. And the order of things goes beauty, then wonder, and then worship. We ought to see beauty as close to God's hand. When we see something that captures our attention, we find it attractive, we find it excellent, we look at it and we say, this is good. Much like God looked at creation and calls it good. We ought to see that beauty, and if we keep our eyes searching just a little bit longer, we will find God's hand close by. When we see a beautiful gift, we see the hand of the giver right next to it. This is why David in Psalm 27 seeks the Lord in the place of worship. He will gaze on the beauty of the Lord and enter into the greatest satisfaction of his soul that delights in beauty. That that really the beauty that is all around David, whether it be in the fields when he was with the sheep or in the palace with all of its splendor, All of these things are tutors to David's soul to seek the Lord who satisfies. And ultimately, David comes to worship the Lord forever. Now, I would offer, if you look at the Trinity again, if you look at the Trinity and you you explore the nature of the beauty of the Trinity, one of the things that you'll find is the deepest, the most enduring realities about beauty Our beauty is self-giving, all right? Beauty is, maybe another word would be generous, okay? At the center of beauty is the self-giving love of the Trinity, this love of the Father for the Son, the Son's love for the Father, the Spirit eternally proceeding from the love between Father and Son, this beautiful dance of the Trinity, is beautiful because it is a self-giving dance of the eternal triune God. There's no holding back in the love that is in God. There's no hedging of bets. There's no compromise. Friends, there's no 50-50 or let's say 33-33-33 sort of compromise in the love that is in the Trinity. It is a full-throttle, eternal joy in absolute perfect love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all subsequent created beauty is a result of that self-giving generosity. That love. As we've shared in recent weeks, creation itself is a gift. Creation, that there is. Are you with me? That there is you, like at all. That there's being, that there's something that isn't God at all, is an act of generosity. The first act of generosity is creation itself outside of the triune God. Creation, the gift of being, the self-giving love of our creator. 
now compared to light and beauty, in self-giving love with broken, fallen reality of consumerism. We've been talking about beautiful, lofty things for a little bit there. And I said a nasty word, right? It's ugly compared to what we've been talking about so far. Just simple consumerism. We're beauty junkies. This is what we are. We are beauty junkies. We, we like to hoard it. We've become hoarders of the beautiful things. Consumerism is an indicator that we do possess the desire for beautiful, for joy-giving, for excellent, for good. Consumerism, this, this ugly concept, when you compare it to the self-giving love and generosity of our God, Consumerism is evidence that there is something beautiful because we want it. And we don't just want it. We want more of it. But we never really obtain it because we seek to hoard it to ourselves. Do you see it? We're not interacting with beauty, that beauty the way that beauty must be interacted with. It has to be received as a gift. And if you really want to participate in beauty... It has to also be given. Because consumerism abuses the very nature of beauty. Beauty is self-giving, not hoarding. And to go and try and grab something that is good, so much of consumerism is a consumption of that which is good. But when you take it and you seek to hoard it, you do an abuse to the beautiful thing. Consider both Psalm 16 and 27, and I encourage you, go and read them both during the course of your week and reflect on the nature of the beauty of our God. The psalmist holds out repeatedly the fact that there is no good, there is no refuge, there is no hope, there is no confidence apart from God. And the psalmist's clear desire is to have God before his eyes, to dwell in the house of of the Lord. Even when the good gifts of God are before the psalmist, he sees the hand of God, the giver, the provider, the rescuer, right next to the gift. Look at the image. The image is so clear. What, what the psalmist does is he does this, something that really, if you watch any person walk, unwrapping a gift, when I was sharing this with the team this morning before we gathered, I said, watch any kid, they'll do this. And then I realized, man, I'm picking on kids. Watch any human. When they get a gift, December 25th, watch any of them. We'll do one of two things. We're going to take the gift, unwrap it, take it all, open in the box, and our families mean we'll take the box that's in the box and open that too, and then unwrap that. And, and somewhere in there, maybe, we're going to find something and we're going to look at it. And we're going to take it. We're going to play with it. Maybe read the instructions. Maybe find a battery, put it in it, and go off and enjoy ourselves in our beautiful, good, excellent little gift. That's one response. The other response, it, it's just really, uh, people fall into these two categories. There's only one, two ways to do this. To look at the gift, and then you never take your eyes off it. The other way of receiving the gift is to recognize that there is a hand attached to the gift. It didn't just show up there. 
It was placed there, right in front of you, and you look at the hand. And then you realize that the hand is attached to an arm. And there's this shoulder. And then if you look just a little bit to the right there, you see a face. And you interact, not just with the gift, becoming a hoarder of the gift. You get to interact with the giver. And that's the purpose of beauty. The purpose of beauty is a gift, a self uh, is a, is a self-sacrificial gift by which we are given a road map to follow up the arm to look at the beauty of the self-giving God. In taking hold of beauty, of the gift, we then allow ourselves to be led to the all-surpassing beauty of the giver. One of my favorite songs of all time that song, some of you may know it, Give Me Jesus. How does it end? You can, you can have all the rest. If I've thought about that song so, so often. You can, you can have all the rest, but give me Jesus. But that's not the way it works. It's not the way he is. He doesn't take all the rest from us. He is a self-giving God. And what he gives, he gives us to give us himself. God, you can have all the rest if you'll give me Jesus. But you keep giving me more. You keep giving me greater glimpses of your glory, greater glimpses of your grace, greater glimpses of your beauty and your creative innovation in this world. And every time you do, you're giving me more of a glimpse of the glory and grace of Jesus. You can have it all, as long as I have you. But in you, man, I've got all the beauty that there is. And it just keeps coming. Well, how did this happen? How does this beauty keep coming to a people who are idolatrously consumeristic? Well, we can't talk about that without talking about the beauty of the cross. And there is something that could, should give us pause here. Listen to John chapter 12, verse 32. In John 12, 32, it says, And I, Jesus speaking, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, let's be clear. Jesus, it says in John, he said this to indicate what manner uh, which he would die, that he would be lifted up on a cross. Right? Crosses, by the way, are not beautiful semi-metallic jewelry. They're wooded instruments of execution. And Jesus literally says here, he says, when I'm lifted up on the instrument of my brutal, violent execution will draw all people to myself. Draw all people? Jesus, we're talking about a cross. People don't flock to the man on a cross. People gawk, spit on the man on the cross. What possibly could be appealing, what possibly could be attractive about a man on a cross John seems to suggest that the death of the Messiah is an attractive means by which he would draw people to himself. What beauty could there possibly be in the death of a Messiah? 
Isaiah suggests something far different than what Jesus suggests in John about the suffering servant. He paints a picture that is far from attractive. In Isaiah 53, a passage that is often referenced around Christmas, or around Easter, it says, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Draw amen to me. Doesn't seem to be working for Isaiah. Is it possible that there can be any beauty at all to a dead Savior on a cross? How in the world is a despised, stricken man, cursed and crushed on a cross, going to draw all people to himself? In that, when he's lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Well, I've actually already said it. There is no beauty outside of the Godhead, right? All beauty that is external to God is an expression and reflection of the divine beauty and perfection of God himself. Now consider this. Christ on the cross is the greatest expression of self-giving beauty in all of creation. The man on a cross, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, giving the body that he took on, giving his flesh to creation that had so maligned him and spat upon him, is the beautiful reality of self-giving love. This is what beauty is, Christ on a cross. It's, it's appropriate that we would make jewelry. It's beautiful. It's, it's the greatest expression of artistic, attractive, draw people to look beauty that there is in all of creation history. Jesus takes the cross, a human manifestation of deplorable violence, and he turns it into the ultimate expression of self-giving love. Here's the deal. There is nothing more beautiful than grace. Grace. The beauty of the cross is essentially a Trinitarian Beauty. I want to offer this quote to you. It's a, it's a bit long from Michael Reeves. He says this, that this God makes no third-party sufferer to achieve atonement. The one who dies is the Lamb of God, the Son. And it means that nobody but God contributes to the work of salvation. The Trinity, again, in this glorious, self-giving love, this time to creation. He says this, Now if God were not, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit accomplish it all, now if God were not triune, if there was no Son, no Lamb of God to die in our place, then we would have to atone for our own sin. 
we would have to provide, for God could not. But hallelujah, God has a son. And his infinite kindness, he dies, paying the wages of our sin for us. It is because God is triune that the cross is such good news. It's because there was not merely a man on a cross. There was the God-man making effective, self-giving, atoning grace effective for us. It's good news because it's God's self-giving. It's beautiful because it's grace. So let's compare beauty. This greatest of beauty, this inspiration for so much of the world's art to consumerism. What's broken about consumerism? How does consumerism mute the echo of the voice of beauty? Consumerism believes that the possession of a thing that we, by the possession and consumption of a thing, that we gain something, something desirable, something beautiful. But if the essence of beauty, if the greatest beauty that anyone in creation has ever observed and that draws us to our God, if the essence of beauty is steadfast, self-giving love, then by grasping for something to hoard for ourselves actually means we lose something. Actually means you never actually get to get it. You miss the whole purpose of the beauty, and the beautiful thing immediately loses its luster. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul is not a hoarder of the many good gifts that God did give to him. He says the very purpose of these things is to turn to the Savior. They, I lose them to gain Christ. I give them away. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. In the power of his resurrection, Paul is casting off not only his idolatry, but also his self-righteousness. Any sense that his righteousness is a beautiful thing. No, he doesn't cling to his righteousness. He clings to Christ's righteousness. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible may attain the resurrection of the dead. What does he want? He wants to be in the house of the Lord forever gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And what does he do? What does he do while God gives him this time to remain in this life? Paul is adamant to give away what the Lord has given to others. He participates in beauty by gospel proclamation. Paul is willing to lose everything that he could do, that he could otherwise consume for himself in order to make the beauty of grace known. Because he sees the many beautiful gifts of God in creation, he then looks up to the giver of all good things, delights in the creator's beauty and his grace with a, with a satisfied delight. And then he is able to then enter into a self-giving love in the proclamation of the gospel. Because he didn't lose anything. 
Paul can't lose anything. He's got the beautiful. And he makes the beautiful known. This wasn't just Paul's personal discovery. It's the way of beauty and joy. It's how it works. By definition, we lose everything, take hold of Christ as a gift, gain eternal, beautiful, abundant, desirable life. Have you ever read a missionary bi biography? No, many of you have. They all end up sounding like Paul. They sell everything, leave behind houses and safety and families. They've given everything away to Christ. They who have received the self-giving love of Christ give themselves. They've given everything away, else away, and now they give themselves away to make Christ known. And they join in the core of what beauty is essentially in the Trinity. Beauty is at the right hand of God. Pleasures forevermore. Great art, music, record collections, fine food, exotic vacations, gripping novels, beautiful bodies cannot add to the beauty and desirability of God himself. If we take these things as our end in themselves, an achievement to sculpt of myself or sculpt of my possessions something that is beautiful, what we end with is only breadcrumbs. Feast. Feast on breadcrumbs. Just crumbs. That's why we ask, what have we forgotten about the beauty and the greatness of our God that I would be satisfied with breadcrumbs. Because we start chasing after breadcrumbs as a means to find more bread. I mean, think about it. Chasing breadcrumbs to get full. Shouldn't we ask at some point, where's the bread? <laughs> How'd these breadcrumbs get here? Where'd this beauty come from in all of creation? Is there a creator? Is there a beautiful thing? C.S. Lewis writes, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And we came, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. <laughs> News from a country we have not visited. You see, we, we aren't pilgrims. We're refugees. And we have not yet entered a land of our home. But we've heard of it. And we know that there's a place of refuge. Because beauty, at its core, is a self-giving love of a God who has made a place for his people. We have a God who is Trinity. And he is beauty. He is the Godhead of eternal self-giving love and joy in his presence forevermore. So what is the most important question for a people full of selfish consumerism? 
What is the most important question that we ought to ask ourselves? Is it not, what have we forgotten about how beautiful is our God, how satisfying is our God, how excellent is his love, that we would chase after lesser things? What have we forgotten about the satisfaction is in our God that we would chase after breadcrumbs? Have we lost our desire for him? I don't think so. It's not that we've lost our desire. It's that we've become distracted to satisfy that desire in lesser things. We want and we want and we want and we buy and we buy and we buy and we consume and we consume and we consume and we're never satisfied. The problem is not that we desire too much. C.S. Lewis is excellent at telling us. The problem is that we desire too little. We're satisfied with breadcrumbs. Your hunger for bread is too easily satisfied by breadcrumbs when the baker's hand would lead you to the kitchens of everlasting fullness. C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. How do foolish consumers rekindle a desire for greater things? How do we rekindle a desire for satisfied beauty? Go look at the beauty and splendor of the steadfast, self-giving love of God. You're like, okay, that didn't help. <laughs> Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Eyes saw it. Ears heard the gasps. Hands took him off the cross, put him in a tomb when he died on that day for all who would cry out, for forgiveness of sins in him. And they laid him in that tomb, and he stayed there until on that resurrection Sunday, he burst forth in life because not even death can hold the creator of all things and the redeemer of our souls. And when they, when they saw him, when they heard him, and they touched him, they recorded for us what they saw and heard and touched. You and I can look at the cross. We, you and I have the revelation of God himself and his gospel. Look at the cross. Behold the beauty of the cross. The self-giving beauty of God. And let that lead us as we turn over the beautiful art that is the cross. That is the atonement. As we turn it over and we look at it, let us lead us to wonder. My God, you came for me. I had justice coming at me. And you took it in my place that I might receive your righteousness. Wonder. And then in wonder, respond with worship. We must by faith enter into the infinite self-giving love of God with worship and faith. We trust in the cross of Christ for the salvation of our souls. We repent of all the vain things, the idolatrous sin, all the breadcrumbs that we mistook for God, the fullness of beauty and joy, but never satisfied. And we receive the many blessings and the beauties of this world as good gifts. Yeah. From God. God, thank you. Thank you. Insofar as this good gift 
is still doing its good work to be a map to, to, to guide me back to the worship of you. I'll make use of it. But if it's ever not doing that, it's an idol. Get rid of it, God. Get rid of it quickly. We overflow with worship. We say to our hearts, and especially the little hearts that gather among us so often in this church, this thing is good. This thing is beautiful. But our God is surpassingly glorious and desirable. Do you see the beauty and the harmony and the wholeness of this thing? Do you see God as the source of beauty? This thing is just a gift and a map. We tell our hearts and we tell our households. When we with faith ask the question, what have we forgotten about how great is our God? We will ponder the cross. We'll be moved to wonder and to worship. And finally, we will become missionaries. Period. Worship is a gateway to mission. Because we've seen something great and I just don't know anybody. I, I don't know anyone who can see wondrous things and not exclaim. In whatever way you exclaim. Some of you exclaim, I've seen you. You do it like this. You write it down. That's like you're clapping. That's like your amen. That's great. But you're going to make it known if you've wondered at the great things of our God. We will preach the gospel to our souls. We will preach the gospel to our households. We will preach the gospel to our community and networks to which God has sent us. God will make missionaries of this worshiping people who delight in the beauty of grace. Heavenly Father, before we move to something that would so easily become a command, go and tell somebody about Jesus. Go bring a friend to community group this week. Before we may, would, would jump to something that could sound like a command, worship better. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to faith. That you would give the good gift of faith to each one in this room. And particularly to those who have not believed before. To confess sin. To confess idolatry. To confess the, the, the way that they have sought after the pleasure and beauty and consumption in this world without confession that it is all idolatry if it's not done in thanksgiving and worship. Lord, that we would receive the grace of the cross, that the cross would become beautiful, a means of our forgiveness, a means of our receipt of righteousness, and the resurrection, a means of our being given new life. Lord, I pray that you would save this morning, and that in the midst of salvation, we would move to worship. In the midst of salvation, we would move from worship to mission. Thank you, Lord. I pray. I thank you for what you would do in the midst of your church today. And we say, Lord, you can have all the rest, but give me Jesus. And in you, we find so much more. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.